begins with question 108. What does the seventh commandment teach us? Answer that all unchastity is cursed by God. We must therefore detest it from the heart and live chaste and disciplined lives both within and outside of holy marriage. Does God in this commandment forbid nothing more than adultery and similar shameful sins? Since we, body and soul, are temples of the Holy Spirit, it is God's will that we keep ourselves pure and holy. Therefore, he forbids all unchaste acts, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever may entice us to unchastity. So far, the confession of the church. Dear brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, the seventh commandment obviously touches a nerve in our modern Canadian society. It's one of the values of Canadians today that sexual freedom is very important. Canadians believe that everyone should be free to express themselves sexually in whatever way they choose to do, provided they are doing it with another consenting adult. And so when God says in the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, this conflicts violently with the spirit of the age. And that's especially true when we realize that the seventh commandment is a kind of a summary of God's will for many other aspects of life beyond what is called adultery. The offense of the seventh commandment is intensified when people come to understand that it refers not only to the act of adultery, but also to the thought of adultery and to the desire for adultery. And the offense of the seventh commandment is deepened even more when we realize that even in cases where there is no adultery involved, because people are unmarried, The Bible, nonetheless, also prohibits sexual relations between anyone outside of the framework of marriage. So sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend is prohibited by God in the Seventh Commandment. Hooking up with a stranger is prohibited by God in the Seventh Commandment. Consorting with a prostitute is prohibited by God. So is looking at pornography, whether for a moment or for a lifetime. Which leads people to ask the question, perhaps, and I've been asked this directly by people in the community who are not Christians, why does God care so much about who people sleep with? Why is that such a big thing for religious people, I was asked once. Why does God care so much about this topic that even thinking about certain kinds of relationships offends him? Why is the Bible so emphatic in denouncing and rejecting utterly all extramarital and all non-marital sexual relationships. You might be asked that question one day, Christian neighbor, why is this all so important to you and to your God? And the answer that I wish to share with you this afternoon from the Word of God is that All these things are so important to God because human sexuality is tied to something sacred. We can even say that in a very deep and profound way, our sexuality is connected to God. And it's connected to God's gospel. It's connected to God's plan of redemption for the world in which we live. 
And so this afternoon, we will explore the connection between the seventh commandment and the gospel of God's grace. And in this way, hopefully, we will all understand a little bit better just why God gave us this beautiful commandment. And so our theme is, in the seventh commandment, God protects the gospel of salvation. Well, you can't read very far into the Bible, brothers and sisters, before finding out that God definitely has a very strong interest in the institution of marriage. At the very beginning of the Bible, we find God creating first Adam and then creating Eve and then bringing together this human bridegroom and bride, officiating, as it were, at their wedding ceremony. And thereafter, Adam and Eve become, in the words of Genesis 2, verse 24, one flesh. Two lives, life of a man and the life of a woman, are blended together by an act of God to create a mysterious unity of mind and body and spirit, which we call marriage. That's how the Bible begins. Chapter 1 hints at it when it says that God made them male and female, and chapter 2 makes it explicit when God actually brings Adam and Eve together. So the Bible begins, and if you go then to the end of the Bible, you find out that it also has a marital flavor. At the end of the Bible, we find the marvelous account of the marriage feast of the Lamb. The bridegroom, Jesus Christ, and his beautiful bride, whom he has washed and sanctified with his blood and spirit. Bridegroom and bride brought together, celebrating their union at the marriage feast of the Lamb with a, with a prospect of living together in the bond of holy matrimony for all eternity. Having the Bible begin essentially with marriage and having it end essentially with marriage, you know that's a clue for us as Bible readers, even if you're not a very deep Bible reader yet, maybe the Bible is still kind of new to you and you're just kind of figuring your way around the the storyline of the Bible. You can't go wrong by doing what a lot of people do with a new book, read the beginning and then read the end, and you'll get some idea of what this is all about. And so if you can understand these two weddings at the beginning and the end of the Bible, I can assure you, you are very well on the way to understanding the message of the whole book. You see, the Bible is, in its entirety, from beginning to end, a lengthy story of romance and marriage. The Bible is a story of a loving, divine bridegroom who sets out to find for himself a bride. And in some way, every created human being is part of that story of the bridegroom finding for himself a bride. You see, in a a very mysterious and marvelous way, our relationships and our sexuality and our bodies are a kind of a platform through which God displays his relationship with his people, his bridegroom. And once you understand the centrality of marriage to, in its connection to the gospel, maybe you can understand a little bit better why powers of darkness are hell-bent, literally, on destroying and defacing in every way possible this sacred institution of marriage. How can the devil love marriage when every marriage is created by God to be a display 
of his divine love for his people and his people's love for him. And, you know, I believe that every single human being, even those who are in the darkest um, thraldom of paganism, I believe that every human being in some way can sense in their heart that there is something deeply significant about sexuality and marriage. For instance, when there is a wedding, even the most hardened heathen people know that this is something very special, something that you ought not to mock, something that you ought not to make light of. You can think in this respect of royal weddings. Personally, I have to confess that this is a bit of a mystery to me because I don't share that fascination with royal weddings that some people have. But many people in our society have a great fascination for royal weddings. Maybe it was the wedding of Charles and Diana. Maybe it was Prince Harry and Meghan. Or if you're a little bit older, maybe it was about Princess Beatrix and Prince Klaus. But somehow, for human beings, if you combine marriage and royalty, that's kind of an intoxicating mix for them. And that's why you can walk into many people's houses and find on their coffee tables large books with endless photos of some royal wedding. All the pomp and pageantry of a royal wedding seems to touch something in the hearts of many human beings. The beautiful clothes, the wonderful music, the inspiring words, the exchange of vows... All of that does something to people. And sometimes, to their surprise, it does something to them. They thought they were indifferent to these things. But when they actually see it again, they are touched in ways they hadn't expected to be touched. And we should ask ourselves, why would that be? Why would it be that people are so fascinated by a wedding, and particularly by a royal wedding? Well, to understand, I would like to point you again to Psalm 45, which we read a few moments ago. This is a psalm about the wedding of an Israelite prince and his bride. It's a wedding song. It says above the psalm in, in the Hebrew. And it's actually an exceptionally beautiful wedding song. Maybe the imagery doesn't speak to 21st century people, but if you just give yourself a little room to be stirred by poetic imagery from a different culture in a different time, I think you'll find it very beautiful. It starts off by telling us something about the groom. It says in verse 2, You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. And so you get the message. The message is that this groom is very handsome. He's got a way with words. And he's a great warrior who does amazing things for his country and for his people. And then the psalm also describes the bride. We read that she's wearing the finest of gold from Ophir. We read in verse 13 that she looks amazing in her golden gown. And we read in verse 14 that in her beautiful robe she is led to the king, accompanied by her bridesmaids. It's a beautiful procession. 
as a bride and her ladies enter the king's palace for the wedding service. A perfect couple, beautiful ceremony, and the prospect of many happy years stretching out ahead of this couple. But upon closer inspection, this psalm has a startling element. It says some amazing things, actually, about the groom who's getting married. In verse 6 of this psalm, we read about the groom. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of righteousness. That's odd, isn't it? Because his his groom is clearly a man, but he's also being addressed here as God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And if you were to turn to Hebrews chapter 1 and look at verses 8 and 9, you would see that this verse from Psalm 45 is cited and it is applied directly to our Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord Jesus Christ is that man of Psalm 45 who can also be addressed as your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So, in the light of continuing revelation, we need to understand that the bridegroom of Psalm 45 is no ordinary bride or no ordinary bridegroom, but he is a divine human bridegroom And so the wedding story of Psalm 45, in the light of further scriptural unfolding of the gospel, is really a Jesus Christ and his bride psalm. Psalm 45 is about Jesus Christ and his church, whom he came to seek and to purify for himself as an eternal bride. And that picture of Psalm 45 of God as the bridegroom, or his son Jesus Christ as the bridegroom, and his people as the bride is repeated endlessly in many different permutations and variations. I think, for example, of Isaiah 54, where we read in verse 5, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. What an incredible sentence. Your maker is your husband. Isaiah 62, verse 5. For as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. What about Isaiah 2, verse 19, where God says to his people, And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. We could translate that perhaps a little bit more loosely by saying, I will make you my wife forever. I will be faithful to you and make you mine, and you will finally know me as the Lord. That's Hosea 2, verse 19. And we find this kind of language in the law. We find it in the Psalms. We find it in the prophets. God is the bridegroom. His people are the bride. Between the two parties of this relationship, there is an amazing bond of mutual belonging. God belongs to his people. He gives himself to his people without holding anything back. He gives them the fullness of his love, the fullness of his faithfulness. And that's why it's so powerful to read in the Old Testament over and over that the God of Israel is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. 
Those are very beautiful Old Testament words that occur repeatedly. And every time you hear them, you should think of God's marriage with his people. And in that marriage, God says, I will, I will display to you, my people, steadfast love and faithfulness. You will always be able to count on me because I have given myself to you in covenant and I stand behind my promises now and forevermore. Over and over, as you know, in the the Old Testament, God says to his people simply, I am your God and you shall be my people. That captures the heart of the biblical idea of covenant. God's covenant with his people is marital. And with that Old Testament background in our minds, we come to the New Testament and we read passages like the one we found in Mark chapter 2. Jesus was asked by his disciples, why, why don't you fast? And why don't we as your disciples fast like the disciples of John the Baptist fasted? And then Jesus simply said in reply, how can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? And by these words and similar words in the gospel, Jesus identified himself as a divine bridegroom who had entered into the world to find his bride. God was coming to the world in the person of Jesus to seek his bride. And so why is marriage so special? Marriage is special, brothers and sisters, because it points beyond itself. If marriage was just just a human relationship, nothing more, it wouldn't really be that special. But it's special because it points beyond itself to the love relationship between a holy God and his redeemed people, the church. And so the entirety of the love relationship of a man and a woman in Christian marriage, including the sexual union of a man in Christian marriage, the entire unity of that man and woman testify to and proclaim the eternal love relationship between Jesus Christ and his people. And I think this explains why human beings are fascinated by royal weddings. When you witness such an event, it touches you, it stirs you, because it connects to something that is actually absolutely fundamental to the universe that God made. The universe that God made is a universe in which there is a relationship between the divine creator and the people he made in his own image. And so when you're seeing a wedding and you're seeing a man and a woman pledge troth to each other and you're participating in this event and you're allowing it to touch you, you are being drawn to the mystery that I may say to you is at the very heart of the universe. You see, materialists tell tell us that the universe is about molecules and atoms and subatomic particles and various kinds of electromagnetic energy, and that's what the universe is. It's just physical things, ultimately. That's the view of, of a materialist. But the Bible says that at the heart of the universe is something much more beautiful and rich. The Bible says that the heart of the universe is God, a God who says about himself that he is love, and a God who in love has entered into a dynamic covenant bond with a people whom he chose from eternity to be his very own people. 
And so when you go to a wedding and you're stirred by the wedding, and I hope you are stirred by it, I hope none of you have become so jaded that you can't be stirred by a wedding. I've officiated at many weddings, hundreds of them, and I must confess that I don't really like the run-up to it and I don't enjoy rehearsals and all that kind of stuff. But when you come to a wedding and the bridegroom is standing at the front of the church in expectation and his beautiful bride approaches... The magic of that moment catches one, even if you've seen it hundreds and hundreds of times. And I think that's good, because a wedding reminds us that there's just got to be more to life than the ho-hum of our daily existence, the grind of our daily existence. A wedding reminds us that there's just got to be more to life than trying to make some more money. There's got to be more to life than the fleeting satisfaction of looking at pornography, which degrades you every time you do it. There's got to be more to life than that. And for that matter, there's got to be more to religion than just all kinds of rules and regulations. When you're at a wedding and you allow yourself to be stirred by it, maybe the Holy Spirit will stir you in a particular way as you go to a wedding this summer and you just let it sink into you you're being reminded that indeed there is much, much, much more to life than just those things that I've mentioned. You're reminded at a wedding that at the heart of existence is the power of the burning love of a holy God for his redeemed people, about whom he is extremely passionate. If you put all this together in your mind, perhaps you can begin to understand why God cares so much about who people sleep with. He cares so much about who people sleep with because when people sleep with somebody or do the things that ordinarily might lead to sleeping with someone, if they do all of this outside of the framework of marriage, you know what they're doing? They're telling a big fat lie. They're telling a big fat lie with their bodies a big fat lie about God, a big fat lie about the nature of the universe, a big fat lie about how God has constructed reality. You see, God is not a user of people. When God seeks his bride, he doesn't seek her to use her. When God takes his people to himself, he doesn't use them, but he gives himself to them in a permanent, enduring, eternal covenant of love. And it's only in the framework of that eternal, enduring covenant of love that God then says to his people, and now you give yourself also to me. And you can give yourself to me because I have given you this security of an eternal, enduring covenant of love. And it's not dangerous for you to give yourself to your God because here I am. And I will always be so as I am today. I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I will never walk away from my covenant with you. I will be true to you always, God says to his people. And therefore, it's safe for you to give to your bridegroom, your heavenly father, the totality of your love. You don't have to hold back. You don't have to be afraid that one day this might come back to haunt you. This act of giving yourself to your gracious God. It's never going to haunt you because God is good and God is gracious. But what are you doing when you're intimate with someone to whom you're not married? 
Well, this may sound harsh, but I would say to you that in every single case, when you are being intimate with someone to whom you're not married, you are using that person. And they're probably using you also. Even if lots of good emotions are around it and feelings of satisfaction are involved in it. You see, when you are intimate with someone and you're not married to them, then you want something from them without ultimately giving yourself to them. And that's a sin of adultery. It's a sin of fornication. That's a sin of promiscuity, that you want something from someone to satisfy you without you giving yourself to that person in the totality of your lifelong commitment of love. And so it's really harsh to say, perhaps, and probably incomprehensible, but every type of sexual relationship outside of the institution of marriage makes a mockery of God, makes a mockery of the kind of world God created, makes a mockery of his covenant, and involves the vile degradation of another human being. You see, when you use someone, you are degrading that person. You are diminishing them. You are reducing their integrity. You are reducing their ability to image God. And so ask yourself, if you're ever tempted to be engaged in some type of intimate encounter without marriage, ask yourself, could, could this particular situation that I'm getting myself involved in now, could it possibly be a mirror of the relationship between God and his people? Could it possibly somehow give testimony to the steadfast love and faithfulness of God to his people? Does it, does it possibly give expression to the joyous surrender of the church and the security of her eternal covenant with God? You see, when you know the marriage story of the Bible, when you realize that marriage is at the heart of the Bible and is at the heart of the universe, it's at the heart of the Bible because the Bible is a story of the universe. If you know that marriage is a story of the Bible and the story of the universe, if you know that the world is heading towards that perfect day when there will be a blessed marriage of eternal love, between God and his people, then I think you will feel something growing in you, a desire to conform your sexual expression and your sexual desires and your sexual actions to that eternal reality. And that's what the seventh commandment is asking you to do. It's commanding you to do. It's not just inviting you to do. It's commanding you to do. It's saying, align your sexual desires your sexual expressions, align all of that to the fundamental reality that God has built into the world and into redemptive history. You will want your sexuality to match the deep meaning of the universe. You see, sex, sex is God's appointed way for a man and a woman to say to each other, I belong to you, you belong to me. And that's the fundamental message of the covenant. God says, I belong to you. I've chosen you. And we say, oh God, we love you. And we choose for you. And we give ourselves to you. And if what you're doing at a particular moment 
can't be fit into that picture, then it is condemned by God. That's why God hates unchastity, because it tells a big fat lie about him, about his people, about redemptive history, and about the universe. Now, if you need some extra motivation beyond what's already been articulated this afternoon, something else to think about. When you have intimacies outside of the covenant of marriage, not only are you telling a lie about God, but you are actually harming another person. You're harming yourself. You can speak about that another time, perhaps, but you're harming another person. You think about that. There's no such thing as casual sex without complications. The world wants you to believe that. The world wants you to believe that sex is not much more than, than play for adults. That's what people think, seem to think about it today. But the Bible wants you to know that there is never, ever anything casual about a sexual encounter. Even if you thought it was just a casual fling, even if you didn't want to read into it any deep meaning or any long-term commitments, even if you thought it was just innocent pleasure behind your computer screen, perhaps, it actually wasn't. You know what it was? It was adultery. That's what it was. It was a denial of God and of the way he's made the world and of his relationship to the church. And if you are engaging in such actions or thoughts or patterns of desire, you're also giving away something of yourself. And you know when you give something away of yourself, you can't just get it back just like that. There's always a cost. Do you realize that, young people? There's always a cost in sexual immorality. This doesn't mean it's, there's no redemption. We'll get to that in a minute. Of course there's redemption. Nobody should ever feel hopeless. But there is a cost. There's a cost in sexual immorality. And it's an emotional cost. It's a physical cost. It's a relational cost. But above all, it's a spiritual cost. Because when you do this, you are denying God and you are losing over your life a sense of God's favor and his delight in you. You're losing that. Now, if truth be told, every single human being in this room and in any room of the world is guilty in some way of abusing the gift of sexuality. You know, all the ways in which people can make a mess of sexuality? Well, there's a multitude of them. Time would fail us to describe all the ways in which people can make a mess of their sexuality. So many ways in which people distort the gospel by their sexuality and its misuse. And it can make you feel horribly guilty. And you know that's okay. It's okay. Don't, don't be so concerned that maybe a sermon is inducing guilt in you. That's sometimes what sermons are supposed to do. They're supposed to convict you. The law of God, when we transgress it, is meant to make us feel guilty. It makes us feel guilty because we are guilty. That's reality. And so we should never trivialize sin. Sin is a big deal. Sin is nothing less than messing up God's glorious universe. And so we need to confess to God our adulterous ways. We are by nature adulterers. And even as Christians, we have tendencies in that direction. But here's the thing. 
when God breaks us down with his law, the seventh word of his law, he doesn't do it to leave us in misery. He doesn't do it so that we would wallow for weeks and months and years in the depths of despair. Why does God break us down with his law? Well, God breaks us down with his law so that he can build us up again in his grace and make us new in the blood and spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, if there's one thing God wants us to know about him, it is that he is compassionate and he is gracious and he is ready to forgive his children. Someone said if God had a Twitter handle, it would undoubtedly say something about forgiveness and compassion. And that means dear people of God, that you have a very strong motivation to bring your sins to the Lord. You don't have to worry that the Lord will reject you because you've sinned. You can bring your sins to the Lord and you can ask the Lord to forgive you and to cleanse you. And if you are sincere, the Lord absolutely will do that. And he won't take a week to do it either. He'll clean you right up. And he'll put you on a new path. And he'll give you new hope. But here's the thing. You can't ask the Lord to forgive you for your sexual sins if you don't also desire the Lord to change you so that you don't do those things anymore and don't even think about those things anymore. See, when you seek forgiveness from the Lord, that only works for the Lord if you're also seeking at the same time transformation. And if you don't want to be transformed, don't ask God to forgive you because he won't. But when you do, God will change you. God will renew your heart. And as God renews your heart, you'll start to see that sexual sin can never give you what God gives you. Sexual sin certainly promises a lot. It promises to fulfill you. It promises to make you happy. It promises to give excitement and satisfaction. It will whisper to you that you deserve it after all, and besides that, everybody else does it too. It's only natural, and you'll, you'll hear all of these good reasons why you should give up your commitment to chastity and, and just live a little. But it's all lies. It's all lies. From top to bottom, it's lies. No one ever gained happiness through sexual sin. That's a law of the universe. No one ever gained happiness through sexual sin. They may have gained some pleasure of a short-term variety and it felt good at the moment, but no one ever gained happiness, joy, lasting joy through sexual sins. Instead, sexual sins leave you empty. They leave you very, very empty. You feel defiled. You are defiled and you feel it and you know this, this is not sustainable. It won't lift you up. It will damage you instead and leave you with scars and wounds. Wounds that actually won't heal on their own. But instead, when you drink the living water of the gospel, when you have the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart, when your ultimate needs are being met by your Lord and Savior, when you are grounded in God, and when you are living in that marital covenant of grace with the Lord your God, then you won't ever make the mistake of thinking that sex is the one great thing that will change your life. 
You see, it won't, doesn't, can't, never will. Sex isn't meant to be everything. It's meant to be something. It's meant to be something important and beautiful. It's meant to be something that communicates a message about the gospel and about the universe. But here's the thing. Even if you can't have sexual relations because you're not married, maybe you're widowed, maybe you're divorced, or your spouse is not well, you know what? You're ultimately not missing out on anything. Can I say that again? You're ultimately not missing out on anything. You're not missing out on anything essential to be uh, healthy, joyful, well-functioning human being. Because you know it's like this. Think of, think of human sexuality within marriage as a sign and seal of that eternal relationship which we have with God. It's a sign of it because it pictures it, and it's kind of like a seal of it as well. But even if you don't have that outward sign and seal, you have the reality. If you're a Christian, then you have the reality to which marriage is pointing. And so if you're single and not happy about it, let this be encouraging to you. You have the reality to which marriage points even if you don't have marriage because you have a marriage with your God and with your Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, even if you're happily married, that marriage will come to an end because your human marriage is not meant to be forever. It will come to an end. But the reality to which that marriage has been pointing all along, that is truly forever. And so you can have the reality to which marriage points without actually being married. And so this is the reason God gave us the seventh commandment, brothers and sisters. He gave it to protect the gospel. He gives it to turn our hearts to him in consecrated love and devotion. He gives us the seventh commandment so that we would learn to live in harmony with the real nature of the universe, which is a place that God has designed to reveal his eternal love for his people in Jesus Christ. And so when you know this, then you won't want to waste your lives in sinful pleasures which can never give lasting joy. And so may God write this commandment upon our hearts today and forever. Amen.